This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Immediately, he joined a small group of rescuers trying to reach the classrooms. What he saw, he said, would never leave his mind. The children, still at their desks, covered with slime, sludge and mud, dead by suffocation. And the mummified form of the teacher still standing in front of the children, with his arms out, as though he was trying to protect them. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 40, The Abavan Disaster. With many thanks to our guest writer for this episode, and for more information on the lasting effects of Abavan, stay tuned until the very end. Up until the 1970s, the South Wales Valleys were the UK's powerhouse for coal and steel production for both domestic use and export, in an industry that mined over 160 million tonnes a year by 1966. Coal and steel were the bedrock of the Welsh economy. As the mines developed, they sucked in many rural and farm workers from the countryside, attracted by the comparatively high wages and job security transforming the small hamlets near each mine into thriving pit villages. Around 100 years prior to the story I'll be telling today, in 1869, John Nixon established a coal and ironstone mine at Abavan. By the turn of the century, 1,400 people worked at the mine, and by the end of the First World War, this had grown to 2,500. Abavan had grown from a settlement of two houses and a pub used by local farmers and canal bargemen to a bustling mining village of 5,000 people. It sits at the bottom of the western slope of the Taff Valley and the Merthyrvale coal mine, the lifeblood of the village, surrounded by hills and mountains, with trees on the lower slopes and with the river Taff running from north to south through the village. Abavan had everything that was needed within the village butchers, bakers, greengrocers, a library, and even a recreational hall with pubs and working men's clubs where the men would go each evening to drink and smoke and take the family on Saturday night for an evening of entertainment. There was no need for the miners' wives, who at this point in time tended to run the home and were the backbone of village life to travel the six kilometres north to the larger town of Merthyr Tidville more than once or maybe twice a year. On Sundays, the sturdy sound of Welsh voices resonated from Abavan's village's nine chapels, churches and gospel halls. The isolation of each pit village in the Welsh valleys led to an unusually tight community bond where everyone knew each other's business, where they were born, they lived and died together and where their children played with each other. Whilst the predominance of the Welsh language was not as strong in the north of the country, it was still spoken in Abavan. Whilst mining was hard, dirty and dangerous, it was also convenient and secure at a time when the hunger and hardship of the Great Depression, just 30 years before, was still a recent memory. Since the war, coal production had been in decline as it faced competition from oil and gas, There was a political programme of pit closures and pit and miner numbers were falling across the country. 
On the 21st of October 1966, miners on the early shift fell out of bed and took the short walk to the Merthyr Vale coal mine. The slopes of Menid Merthyr Mountain that towered over the village had, over the years, lost much of their tree line. This had caused severe flooding in the Panklas area of Abavan at least 11 times between 1952 and 1965, as the rainwater ran off the hills and directly into the village. Dominating the skyline above Panklas were seven slag heaps, made up of two million cubic metres of mining waste, rock, mud and dust. Rather than dispose of the waste in a planned way, tradition was to simply dump it, somewhere out of the way but close enough to the mine to save on transportation costs. The slag heaps were numbered one to seven, one being the first created and seven being the only one where waste continued to be dumped. Number seven was 34 metres high and contained around 227,000 cubic metres of material. In October 1966, it rained more heavily than usual, although that was only to be expected in this part of Wales. And at dawn on the 21st of October 1966, it was raining again. Mist hung heavy in the valley, hiding the tops of the mountains from view. Below, the miners' children were having breakfast before walking to school. Juniors for the bell at nine o'clock, seniors for half past. Above Abavan, underneath slag heap number seven, the natural spring and rainwater combined and flowed out from the bottom of the pile, making the ground perpetually soft and wet mixing with the waste to form that slippery, sludge-like substance. At 7.30am as usual, the gang working slag heap number 7 arrived at the slag heap and went to the mess hut to brew up. Because it was a Friday, charge hand Leslie Davis wasn't with his gang as he was giving the weekly Friday report to coal mine engineer Vivian Thomas. Gwyn Brown, the slag heap crane operator, along with slinger David Jones, left the rest of the gang and walked to the top of Slag Heap 7, as they did every day, to check the highest point before moving the crane up. They could look down the valley and see the pit heads and the boiler house chimney of Merthyrvale coal mine, visible through the white mist that covered the valley. As they reached the top, they stopped. The end of the crane rails had bent and subsequently fallen into a crater three metres deep, that had formed in the top of the slag heap overnight. This was a sign that something was very wrong. They needed to report it immediately. However, one of the men realised that the landline phone had been removed because of a series of cable thefts. Of course, there were no mobile phones back in 1966, and they were on their own up there. So it was decided very quickly that they would have to make their way back on foot to raise the alarm. David turned around and started off rapidly towards the coal mine to report what they had seen, and the rest of the gang came out of the mess hut and started to move the crane back from the edge of the crater so the overhanging, bent rails could be cut by the more well-equipped cutter team when they arrived. Just before 9am... The children of Abavan were finishing their breakfasts and getting ready to step out of the warmth of their small terraced miners' cottages into the cold, damp, foggy streets to go to school. 
as mums waved goodbye from their doorsteps. Their dads were already underground. Today was exciting. It wasn't just any ordinary school day. At midday, half-term would begin. As they left their homes and walked to school, some would call into the sweet shop to get sweets. Others called in at their friends' houses on the way so they could walk to school together. And some of the mothers would walk their smaller children to school to make sure they got there safe and sound. Gradually, all 240 children arrived at the Victorian Red Brick Panklas Junior School and congregated for morning assembly. Today's normal, all things bright and beautiful hymn was postponed for that morning so they could sing it just before they went home when the head teacher planned to wish her pupils a safe and enjoyable holiday. Meanwhile, David, the slag heap gangslinger, had arrived at the coal mine engineer's office to tell him about the crater at the top of Slag Heap 7. Coal mine engineer Vivian Thomas quickly arranged for a cutter team to go back up to the slag heap with David so that they could cut off the overhanging rails. He told David to tell the slag heap team to stop tipping and that the following Monday he would come up to the site himself and find a new tipping place. David and the cutter team started to climb back up Merthyr Mountain with the cutting equipment. They arrived at the top at about the same time as children arrived at the school below in the valley. When David got back to the top and Gwyn walked to the edge of the crater again, they were shocked to see that the depression had doubled in depth in the short amount of time David had been away. The children filed into classrooms and began their lessons with teachers standing at the front of the class. Marilyn Brown's daughter, Jeanette, was one of the school children that day. She had been born with two holes in her throat and was operated on twice as a newborn. The problem recurred when she was six, but she responded well to further surgery and normal life resumed in the Brown household, which by now included a son, Robert. Quote, she wasn't very good that morning. She didn't want to go to school. End quote. But Jeanette's father, Bernard, a miner at the pit, was adamant she was going in, and he even told her off a little bit. Jeanette took her younger brother, Robert, and called for another little girl up the street. She turned around and waved before taking them, like the big responsible sister she was, off to school. Jeff Edwards was an eight-year-old child also attending the same school at that time. He left his house on Abervan Road and walked the short distance, just three doors down, to pick up his best friend Robert, who was the local GP's son. The pair would often walk through the gullies and stop at a little shop for some sweets, things like shrimps and flying saucers. It was a Friday, so Jeff was well aware it was library book day. He'd finished the Janet and John reading scheme, and once you finished that series of books, you could go on to library books which were kept on a shelf on the opposite side of the class from where Jeff usually sat. From those books, he picked The Adventures of Tintin and then walked back to his desk to hear the teacher settle everyone down to begin their first lesson of the day, maths. As David and Gwyn stood there, staring at the crater that had doubled in size at the top of Slag Heap 7, it suddenly began to rise back up. David said later, quote, It started slowly at first. I thought I was seeing things. 
Then it rose up after pretty fast at a tremendous speed. Then it sort of came up out of the depression and turned itself into a wave. That is the only way I can describe it. Down towards the mountain, towards Abavan village, into the mist. End quote. David started to shout for the others to get out of the mess cabin. And when they saw what was happening, they all started to run for their lives as the roaring wave followed them. Quote, all I could see was waves of muck, slush and water. I couldn't see. Nobody could. We all got to the top of the slag heap and all I can tell you is that it was going down at a hell of a speed in waves. I myself ran down the side of number three slag heap, all the way down towards number two and number one on the side. As I was running down, I heard another roar behind me and trees cracking. I stopped. I fell down, in fact. All I could see was waves of muck, slush and water. I still kept running. I kept going down, shouting. I couldn't see. Nobody could, and I heard a voice answer me, and he shouted, Come out of there for God's sake. That man was Trevor Steed. I went with Trevor Steed down onto the old railway line. By that time, my mates had come down with me, behind me. We went along the line as far as we could towards the school, which we could see. All the houses were down. We could not pass that way because there was too much water rushing down. We could not go the way we wanted to go. At 9.13am that morning, the bottom of slag heap number 7 shot out. 107,000 cubic metres of waste and a slag wave 10 metres high was sliding down the mountainside travelling up to 34 kilometres per hour, over a distance of about 500 metres. It resembled a tsunami made of soil, mud and coal pieces. Mountainside farmhouse and cottages lay directly in the path of the slide. As the wave reached them, the buildings could not stand the force of the waves and collapsed as they were hit, crushing the families inside who had no idea what was happening. Everyone inside the cottages was killed. The mountain of black slurry then swept across the disused canal and over the railway embankment, destroying buildings and anything else in its path, before fracturing the main's water supply, which gushed more water into the slurry, making it more fluid and causing it to pick up speed as it was propelled along. The wave of slurry was heading straight for Pankglass Junior School, with 244 children and teachers inside, oblivious as to what was going on. Outside the school, the local barber George Williams of Moy Road was on his way to open up. With the half-term holidays coming up, he was expecting a busy day with people wanting to look their best for the weekend. As he walked along the street, he heard an unfamiliar noise in the distance. He couldn't quite make it out, What was it? It was hard to see anything in the fog, but he could hear. And the noise was getting louder and louder. Then the windows and doors of the houses on Moy Road exploded, and the brick walls of the houses collapsed like dominoes, as suffocating spoil and mud engulfed him and filled the buildings it hadn't already destroyed. George was buried alive. Ten-year-old Phil Thomas was also walking across Moy Road as he was buried and lost consciousness. Quote, I woke, pitch black, buried, 
I couldn't see a thing. Then I started crying. I was shouting for my mum. Inside Pankglass Junior School, the lights started to shake and flicker and there was now an ominous roar like, quote, a jet plane screaming low over the school in the fog. A teacher tried to reassure his class not to worry and that it was only thunder. The children froze in their seats. No one knew what was happening and certainly didn't have time to react in the few seconds before the windows of four of the seven classrooms were suddenly covered in a black liquid which then exploded through the windows with the children still sitting at their desks. As the mud hit, dinner lady Nancy Williams dived on top of seven-year-old Karen Thomas and four other children in the school hall to shield them from the slurry. Karen recalled, quote, We were shouting and trying to pull her hair to see if we could get a response from her because she wasn't saying anything to us. We didn't know what was happening. We couldn't hear anything else. It was just our voices and screams we could hear. Nancy died that morning saving the children. The wave of mud continued on pushing through until it subsided by the neighbouring county secondary school in Abervan Road at 9.15am. Seconds after it had hit, everything went eerily silent. Quote, as if nature had realised that a tremendous mistake had been made and nature was speechless. If the disaster had happened just 20 minutes earlier, the school would have been empty. From the time the pile began to slide to the moment it came to rest was under a minute. But it wasn't finished yet. The burst water mains were pumping thousands of gallons of water into the sludge that was rising in depth inside the school and the buildings that it hadn't already destroyed. The burst mains added between 19 to 14 million litres of water to the spoil slurry. Any survivors were in danger of drowning unless they could get out. Jeff Edwards, the student who earlier had been reading The Adventures of Tintin, had just sat down for his maths lesson in one of the classrooms when he was trapped by the sludge. Crushed against Jeff was everything from the other side of the room, as well as black slurry and the ceiling of the classroom and the roof of the school were collapsing. Quote, I was gasping for breath because the air was getting less and less. But at least I had that pocket of air. The panic really set in when I thought, how was I going to get out? The next thing I remember was waking up. My right foot was stuck in the radiator and there was water pouring out of it. My desk was pinned against my stomach and a girl's head was on my left shoulder and as time went by, her face went really puffy and her eyes started to sink into her head. She was dead. Because all the debris was around me, I couldn't get away from her. The image of her face comes back to me continuously. It was black all around me, but there was an aperture of light about ten foot above me. I remember seeing particles of dust spinning and glistening where the light caught them. I could hear crying and screaming. As time went on, they got quieter and quieter as the children died. They were buried and running out of air. At 9.20, the emergency hooter at the coal mine sounded and when the miners heard what had happened, they frantically left the coalface and with their headlamps still on, 
ran towards the school. Locals and distraught parents had already rushed to the school and were digging through the rubble, some with their bare hands, bruised and bleeding, some with garden tools or whatever they could find to uncover the buried children. At 9.25am, Martha Tidville Police received a phone call from a local resident who said, quote, I have been asked to inform that there has been a landslide at Pankglass. The slag heap has come down on the school. The fire service in Merthyr Tidville also received a call telling them what had happened. 21-year-old police officer Yvonne Price was dispatched with a driver to the scene and as they turned into the village, the driver shouted, I can't get through, the water's rising, the water's rising. Yvonne said, quote, A huge bank of water was coming directly towards us. It was like a tsunami. It was terrifying. As the miners arrived at the school some minutes after the horn had sounded, they took control of the early digging with their professional knowledge about the dangers of unplanned excavation that could lead to a collapse of the spoil and the remnants of the buildings. They formed themselves into chain lines under the control of their pit managers, using buckets, picks and shovels to dig the debris out handful by handful. But they were hampered by the fact that the slurry that ran down the mountain began to solidify almost immediately. One of the miners, Cliff Minette, jumped down into the school hall. Quote, I looked to my left. There was a woman on her knees screaming. It was a teacher. I said, have the children gone home? She said, no, they're all in there. Cliff lost two of his children that day. The fire service arrived and started to inch their way through the mass of muck and rubble. At this early stage of the rescue operation, there were high hopes that most, if not everyone, could be rescued alive, and the first casualties from school arrived at St Tidville's Hospital at 9.50am. By 11am, a total of 22 children and 5 adults were brought in, with a further 9 casualties sent to East Glamorgan Hospital. One of the children sent to St Tidville's was pronounced dead on arrival. Meanwhile, through a window, one of the fire crew spotted a crop of blonde hair. It was Jeff Edwards. The fire crew started to remove all the debris around Jeff, but they still couldn't get him out. The sludge above Jeff was beginning to harden into a cement-like substance, whilst black water from the burst water main continued to gush into the school. The fire crew did manage to get down to Jeff's desk, but they couldn't shift it to get him out, so they got their hatchets out and began to break up the desks. Jeff was then lifted out of where he had been trapped and was thrown in a human chain from one fireman to another and to other people who had come to help the rescue. He was covered in a blanket and then carried out into Moy Road. By the time he got out, which was just after 11 o'clock, all the ambulances had gone so he was taken to St Tidville's Hospital by Tom Harding, who was a fruit seller in the village. Tom had difficulty starting his van because the water that was gushing down had gotten into his exhaust pipe. He and a few other helpers had to push the van to start it off. Tom then rushed Jeff to St Tidville's Hospital, where it was determined he had head and stomach injuries, but would survive. After 11, as time passed... The screaming and crying got less and less. 
It was the silence of people dying, and bodies rather than survivors were now being brought out. It became clear that everyone else inside the school had died, either during the initial impact or shortly afterwards from the injuries they had sustained or suffocation from the sludge. The parents of the children at the school were waiting anxiously for news, many of them standing in the part of Moy Road where the barber's shop was situated that was still accessible. One was Marilyn Brown, whose ten-year-old Jeanette was still missing. Quote, We were waiting, thinking, yes, we're going to have news any minute now of the children, where they are, and we kept asking questions all the time. Marilyn's husband, Bernard, had been one of those digging all morning, hoping to find his daughter and any other survivors. He came over to where Marilyn was waiting for news and sat on the wall, absolutely exhausted. Bernard said, I don't know what to do, Marilyn. I don't know what to do. Eventually, news came through that quite a few children had been buried. Marilyn said, This time you didn't want any more news because you're still thinking, yes, she'll be all right, she'll be fine. Shortly after the slide, a medical student on his way home for a christening was one of those who was able to help. He drove half a mile from Abavan but was unable to go any further by car because the lava-like mud had spread that far out of the village. He ran the remaining distance to the village, but as he did, the sludge got deeper and deeper, and he realised the extent of the disaster. Immediately he joined a small group of rescuers, trying to reach the classrooms. What he saw, he said would never leave his mind. The children still at their desks, covered with slime, sludge and mud, dead by suffocation, and the mummified form of the teacher still standing in front of the children, with his arms out as if he was trying to protect them. He was dead. Ten-year-old Phil Thomas, who had been buried in Moy Road and was trapped under a wall, was still in grave danger. A torrent of water from the fractured mains was spreading through the slurry. Phil was trapped by his feet, and one of the firefighters on the scene could see that the water was rising, coming up to the boy's head level. The seven firefighters that were there gave one final lift and did manage to lift a wall that had collapsed on the young boy. They were able to rescue the ten-year-old and bring him to safety. George Williams, who had been buried alive but had been protected by a sheet of corrugated iron, was still trapped. Council workers did eventually manage to dig him out. What he remembered, he said, was the hush like turning off the wireless, you couldn't hear a bird or a child. Whilst the police had been on the scene from 9.25am, there was now the gruelling task of identifying the dead. Charles Nunn was an acting detective inspector seconded to the regional crime squad in 1966. Designated a senior identification officer, he was part of a team tasked with setting up a makeshift mortuary in one of Abavan's chapels. Charles said, On the morning of Friday the 21st of October, I had a wireless message to pick up what we called the murder bag, which was a case full of paperwork, labels and statements, all the things we needed to deal with a big murder inquiry, and get to Murtha. I thought we were going to deal with a murder case, but of course it didn't turn out like that. 
Merthyr Borough Police, in whose area Aberfan fell, only had a hundred officers. They couldn't cope, so they asked for outside assistance. We were asked to handle the identification of the bodies which were being recovered from the school and nearby houses. Nobody had a clue how many there was going to be. We thought we might be dealing with half a dozen dead. We had no idea that there were going to be 144 dead. At the time, we couldn't comprehend the number. By the time Charles Nunn and colleagues approached Abavan at 10.30am, it had been declared a disaster zone. As well as the Abavan miners, police, ambulance crews, medics and fire crews already on the scene, the army and civil defence were being mobilised. When the news started to spread around South Wales, hundreds of miners from neighbouring pits began rushing to Abavan, especially from nearby coal mines, many arriving in open lorries with shovels in their hands, although by the time they would arrive, there was little they could do. Then, at 10.30am, the BBC News summary led with the story of the disaster. The result was that thousands of volunteers started to travel to Abavan, wanting to help and news crews from the world's major networks started to arrive to report on the disaster. The small roads around Abavan became gridlocked for miles. Cliff Mitchellmore from the BBC reported, Never in my life have I seen anything like this. I hope I shall never see anything like it again. For years, of course, the miners have been used to disaster. Today, for the first time in history, the roll call was called in the street. It was the miners' children. End quote. By 11 o'clock, 28 children had escaped the school, including 10 who had to be dug out, many with serious injuries. The 10th child dug out alive was treated for head injuries. He would be the last survivor of those buried. From now on, it became clear to the rescuers that all of the children they were finding in the school were dead. Most had died at the scene within a few minutes of the wave engulfing the school, many still sitting at their desks, entombed by the slurry. At this point, the miners effectively took over from the firefighters with the local coal board miners' rescue service established to rescue miners trapped underground in the lead. The miners dug and dug in hope rather than expectation of finding someone alive, and every now and again, there was a call for silence. The rescuers would stop digging and talking and everyone would listen in case they could hear a shout from underneath the rubble that would indicate life. There was no sound. No one was brought out alive. One of the rescuers was Roy Hammer. By now he knew that this had become a recovery rather than a rescue operation. He said... I honestly believe that the slurry travelling at that rate, once it came into the school, just swept through it, and the damage was done very quickly. If you can understand the slurry was so small and fine that I think the children were more or less suffocated straight away, rather than suffered agonies. In a way for the parents who had lost children at the school, this was almost comforting because it meant that the children had died instantly and did not suffer for long. As the miners dug out the bodies of their children from the mud, there was further movement in what remained of Slag Heap 7's upper slopes. 
Coal board engineers arranged for volunteers to dig drainage channels to reroute the water so it diverted into the existing watercourse. By 1pm, increasingly heavy rain started to fall, which again threatened to cause more slag heap movement that would jeopardise the rescue work and raised the possibility that the area would have to be evacuated. The volunteers were advised that if they heard the whistle, they should run, because the slag heap had started to move again. By dusk, lights had been set up to allow work to continue for as long as possible. As the bodies of children and adults were dug out, they were taken to the makeshift mortuary at the chapel. Charles Nunn described it as... A typical Welsh Baptist chapel, very dingy, very dour downstairs. There was a small staircase on either side leading to an upstairs gallery, and in the back, the Sunday school room which had one toilet, one cold water sink, and that was it. Our job was to make sure that when a body was released, it was the right body. Very difficult when you've got lots of little boys and lots of little girls. The little ones were laid on the pews, the adults on stretchers across the tops of the pews, males to the left and females to the right. Nurses and Salvation Army volunteers washed off the foul sludge and slurry from each body. By about the fourth or fifth day, downstairs was full and the bodies had to be taken to the upstairs gallery. A description was taken of each child or adult and entered into a body book and details of any possessions in their pockets that might help with identification, like a handkerchief, sweets bought from the local shop, or anything that might help was noted. The chapel was so cramped that only two pairs of relatives could be escorted through at one time, and a queue of parents formed in the rain outside, waiting to heartbreakingly identify their lost child, as the blankets were lifted away from each body until they were recognised. Some bodies were so badly disfigured by their injuries that they were marked not to be viewed and identification had to be made through possessions, dental records or fingerprints taken from toys. Charles said of the parents, I am still to this day struck by their sheer stoicism, their dignity. There was no screaming or shouting. It goes to show how primitive it seems. I wrote up a notice and pinned it to the chapel door, informing parents that death certificates will be issued at the local fish and chip shop. Who decided that? I haven't got a clue. Someone in Merthyr Police, I expect. It was a well-known location. There were no council offices nearby, and someone must have said the chip shop. Everyone knows that. It was the most efficient way. It seems so incongruous now. Charles went on to describe how distressing it was for his officers and others involved in managing that situation. Many had children of a similar age. Of course we were extremely distressed. I do remember one of my colleagues, an amazing man who'd won a military medal in the war and was one of the hardest detectives I'd ever worked with. Each night before we left and the night shift took over, he would go round kutching a Welsh term for cuddle or comfort, the children, and tuck in the blankets covering their bodies. It was a long, cold night ahead. At the home of Marilyn Brown, her father, Jeanette's grandfather, called to tell her bodies were being retrieved from the school and taken to the chapel. He and Jeanette's dad went off to find out more. 
When they returned from the temporary mortuary, Marilyn says, My father started to cry, and I said, Is she all right? And he said, No, Jeanette has died. He said he had just identified her. I said, I want to go. I want to go and see her. No, no, he said. You don't go and see her. She's fine. I said, What does she look like? He said she's got a tiny mark on her head and she's sleeping. And that was that. Well, I just gave in to it then. My father, he was crying and I think it was because he was crying. I was crying as well. But it sort of comes over you then. Yes, she's gone. By the end of the day, 60 bodies had been recovered from the disaster area. Prime Minister Harold Wilson also arrived and told the Welsh Secretary of State, who was with him, to take whatever action he thought necessary, irrespective of any considerations of normal procedures, expenditure or statutory limitations. And that evening, he announced an inquiry into the cause of the disaster. The head of the National Coal Board, Lord Robins, and the person who was ultimately responsible for the disaster, did not visit Abavan on the day of the disaster. He instead arrived late on Saturday. Work continued that Saturday, and with some 2,000 emergency services workers and volunteers on the scene working round the clock, work continued on clearing the slurry. By the 23rd of October, the Territorial Army, naval ratings from HMS Tiger, and members of the King's Own Royal Border Regiment were working at Abavan. It was not until the 28th of October that the last victim was dug out of the slurry, and after 15 days, and with the 144th body identified, Charles and his team packed up and left Abavan. The question was, how had this massive disaster been allowed to happen? The entire South Wales Valley's landscape was dotted with these slag heaps, and it was known much before the 1966 disaster, that a badly sited slag heap could move. If it was over an underground spring, the heap could become wet and fluid enough to start sliding. In 1944, that's exactly what happened to slag heap number four. The slag heap had been started on solid ground nearly 20 years earlier, but it gradually grew and grew until it covered the source of a major stream, No drainage was attempted and no effort was made to divert the streams that were eventually engulfed by mining waste. So these streams bled into the base of the growing heap. On the 27th of October 1944, a large part of slag heap number four started to slide towards the disused Glenmore Canal in the middle of the village, travelling 600 metres down the mountainside before it came to a stop. This was a reminder to the villagers that slag heaps built on slopes can slip and once they've started moving, they can travel long distances. Think of an avalanche made of coal waste, rocks and mud. However, as no one in the mine had been injured, according to operational practices at the time, there was no need to report it. Safety was for those working underground. No real thought was given to surface safety. Slag heap number four, having moved, was now useless, and so in 1945, slag heap number five was started a little higher up the mountain. 
There was no geographical investigation or ground preparation for the new slag heap, and it grew and grew to become enormous until it covered an underground spring, and then as it grew further, it covered 300 metres of watercourse. By 1951, ominous bulges had started to appear in part of the outer flanks of the slag heap, so by 1956, it was abandoned. The new slag heap number six was started lower down the mountain, again without planning or precautions against slippage, but was abandoned shortly afterwards when a farmer pointed out to the National Coal Board that it had been sighted on his land. Another new slag heap was needed. In 1958, the group manager and the group mechanical engineer had the job of planning the setting up of a new slag heap. They climbed up the side of Menid Murtha to make a decision. They didn't have a map of the area. They had no geological or geographical knowledge. They had no training, background or education in slag heap design or civil engineering. No survey was taken before they decided that slag heap number 7 would be located immediately downslope from slag heap 4, which slipped back in 1944. Once they had decided where slag heap 7 was to be located, the responsibility was handed over to Robert Vivian Thomas, the coal mine engineer, without any advice or indication as to its ultimate size or method of management. Over the years, Slag Heap 7 grew just like every other slag heap, until it too covered the underground springs that had caused Slag Heap 4 to slip. Streams broke through and for years flowed down the valley towards Abavan. Everyone knew about them, and the local children often went up the slag heaps to play and would paddle in the waters. Then, in 1963, Slag Heap 7 slipped when a crater appeared at the top and a bulge formed at the foot as mountain spring water, unable to drain away, liquefied the waste into thick, black quicksand. Again, because no one was injured in the slip, no investigation was carried out. However, the local authorities were worried. The Borough Waterworks engineer wrote to the District Public Works Superintendent on the 24th of July 1963. In this letter, Dated just three years before the Abavan disaster, the Borough Waterworks engineer states, quote, I regard it as extremely serious as the slurry is so fluid and the gradient so steep that it could not possibly stay in position in the wintertime or during periods of heavy rain. End quote. Following this, the matter was escalated to the National Coal Board, but the answer that came back was that it was not economic to move the slag heap. And for the community of Abavan, whose whole livelihood was dependent on the mine, the threat from the National Coal Board was implicit. Make a fuss and the mine would close. The National Coal Board brushed complaints aside. The years passed, slag heap number seven grew, and the underground spring water continued to flow. Then, in October of 1966, as we know, it rained more heavily than usual. And on the 21st of October that year, a little after 9am, 144 children and adults went about their day as usual, completely unaware of the tragedy that would befall them just minutes later. 116 children died, the majority aged between 7 and 11, 5 teachers 
and 23 residents of the cottages and terraced houses that had been destroyed also died. The victims' ages ranged from three months to 82 years. A mass funeral for 81 children and one woman took place at Bryn Taff Cemetery in Abavan on the 27th of October. At the funeral, 5,000 people cried, held each other in their arms and sang together in sorrow, pain and grief. The bodies were buried in a pair of 24-metre long trenches. The thousands of reefs that had been sent out were laid out in the form of a cross on the mountain above the two graves. By 1989, the pit had closed and the slag heaps had gone long before. The cemetery, maintained by the disaster fund set up after the slide, holds the white granite headstones of those who lost their lives at Abavan, and there is a beautiful memorial garden where Panklas School once stood. But it is the memories of those who were there on the 21st of October 1966 and lived through the subsequent horror of what they thought was going to be a normal day, where there's the greatest pain and greatest memorial to the 144 children, women and men who died that day in a village in South Wales. There is a whole lot more to say about the Abavan disaster, mainly the subsequent inquiry and who it found responsible, as well as how the survivors coped and who stole the equivalent of £3 million from the Abavan disaster fund. We have paused regular production of Red Rum's Patreon episodes while I finish my master's degree, but we still have some amazing listeners who have stuck with us over on Patreon, so we've created an extra episode explaining all of those unanswered questions. So head over to Patreon on the 21st of December to hear that. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, you can subscribe to hear that episode and binge the back catalogue of Patreon-exclusive episodes if you want extra content. We will of course continue to create your free regular feed episode every month. So either way, we will see you in January. And to you and your family, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from all of us at Red Rum. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.